All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is profitable. I prayed during the week and again this morning. So I want you to catch this, that every person here would have what I deem as a God encounter. Sometimes that God encounter is a rebuke and a conviction. Sometimes it's goosebumps. Sometimes it's just instruction and learning and equipping. And I, if you're like me, we love the goosebump times, don't we? We love, well, that was awesome. I got the goosebumps and the chills and I was tearing up. And we love those. And sometimes God's word lends to that. Maybe something in today will end toward that. But if it doesn't, that's okay. I invite you, even as we begin in just a moment, to read 47 names in 17 verses that you would even then, Lord, since this is your word and it is profitable and it's inspired, Lord, would you help me to be open to hearing from you and to invite. I've prayed for you already. You need to pray for yourself and say, Lord, if there's something between me and you, reveal it right now because I want to receive from you today. And he'll speak to you. I promise he will. And I pray that the Lord would even give me the right words. Would you join me in verse number one? We're going to jump right into the text. We read it one time last week. So last week we introduced the book of Matthew. We're heading into this as a study. So half of the message was that. And then we had two points that were just really overview. Not line by line, but more dynamic. And even again today, by nature of this passage, it will again be more dynamic of the passage rather than line by line. Verse 1. Here's God's word, so don't find it distant or unimportant. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to commentate all along the way, but notice the word Jesus is his name. We're going to find that out here at the end of this chapter next week. Christ is technically his title. It's the Greek equivalent, which means the anointed one, the Messiah. So the Jews have been looking for a Messiah. Matthew comes on the scene and says his name is Jesus, the Christ. But he connects these in such a way that he already starts doing something that's going to become a little familiar as you head through the New Testament. It's it's a title, but it's kind of used like a name. Technically, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, but we use it, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Anointed One. Verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David, is going to be a key theme in the book of Matthew. Again, the Jews are looking for the son of David. That one. And obviously, if you're a son of David, then you're going to be a son, a descendant of Abraham. But if I could emphasize two words that you think are small and maybe not that important, I would say it this way. I think this is Matthew's point. Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. How did this come to be? Verse 2. Abraham was the father. So he became a father of Isaac. Isaac's not his first child. You'll sense a little theme here at the beginning. Abraham has Ishmael. He's not the chosen line. Isaac is the chosen line, the second born. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob has a twin brother who came out just a little bit before him, Esau. Esau's not the chosen line. Jacob's the chosen line. And the Holy Spirit's leading Matthew to really hone in on the chosen line. Again, the second born. 
Let me just throw this in real quick. Your second birth is the key. Your second birth is the key. Say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, you've been born physically. I'm looking at you. Have you ever been born spiritually? Your second birth is key. So there's Abraham. Abraham was not the oldest in his family, if you study it out. Though he's listed first back in Genesis 11, he's not the oldest. Abraham was probably second or third born. It's his second born child, Isaac. It's Isaac's second born child, Jacob. And now continue, I'll go quicker. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Jacob has 12 sons, but it's Judah. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there's a woman, the wife is mentioned uh, this time, or or the mother is mentioned this time. And Perez, so these twins, Perez, the chosen line, is the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Salmon, Rahab, and then leads down to, we'll talk maybe, I don't know that I'll go into this, but could be a gap of time there, and probably is, from Salmon and Rahab to Boaz, the father who who is the father of Obed. How? By Ruth. Boaz, Ruth, have Obed. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And David, the king. And we know David was the youngest of eight sons to Jesse. And so there's kind of a stopping point there. But then we start again. And David was the father of Solomon. Certainly not his firstborn. This wasn't even the firstborn of David by this wife of Uriah. Again, that's immediately you read that and that sounds a little messed up. David was the father of Solomon, David, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. But again, this was not David and the wife of Uriah's first child. That child dies. But Solomon is the chosen line. And we'll keep moving. Solomon, so David's son, was the father of Rehoboam. If you'll remember, Rehoboam comes on the scene, replaces his father Solomon, basically at peacetime. Rehoboam gets some bad advice from his college buddies, and they say, listen, you need to be really, really tough. You can either be like your dad, you can be looser than your dad, easier going, or you can be tougher. We suggest you go out there and be tough. And so Rehoboam announces to the nation, you thought my dad was tough and high taxes. You wait till you see what I'm going to do. And as a result, uh, the northern ten tribes took their ball and went home and started another nation and left Rehoboam with just Judah and Benjamin. Again, verse number 7. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. He dropped the ball really bad. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa, Asaph, and Asa, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. That's an important one. Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, 586 B.C. We know that the ten northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and Nineveh, but the two southern tribes, they had a little revival and escaped that, but then they went back into their idolatry, Manasseh, and then time had come. And so here, Jeconiah, again, another not good king, and so God allows the Babylonians in 586 to finally complete the defeat of Judah and carries them away captive, verse 12. And then after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, so he's mentioned twice here, before and after, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Now notice these are not necessarily kings again. So the king thing officially finished off there with Jeconiah, but now we have Shiltiel and Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of, oh, they're coming back to Palestine at this point, the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the, and he changes words accurately, Joseph not the husband, uh, not the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Joseph, Mary. Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He's her child. We know he's not Joseph's. But we're having Joseph's line. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, anointed Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What we just read is a genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham, back to David through Joseph's line. You say, well, is this even legitimate? Joseph's not his biological father. It is legitimate because Joseph adopts him and there is all authority and rights because Joseph is in the line of David by Solomon, the kingly line. Luke has another genealogy which most of the experts would come up and say that's actually Mary's line that also goes back to David but not through Solomon but through another son of David, Nathan and through that line that is the biological line. So literally Jesus is by rights through Joseph and biologically through Mary both run right back to David. Thus he is called the son of David. Well, all right, we can pray and we can go. And it was a good day in the Lord's house, right? We read some names and uh, some genealogy. We've got 47 names. Uh, can I be really clear? And the reason I'm emphasizing this now, I'm emphasizing. I'm not going to yell and scream. I'm emphasizing it with my words. The main person in this genealogy is Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's listed first. He's listed last. Yes, there are 47 names in between, but he is the key. I'm mentioning that because of last week, our two, our two points that we had there, I don't want to take away from the last two points this morning. So last week we had two points, dynamic overview, the overview of the dynamic of the passage. The first two points this morning, you may say, well, they're not focused mainly on Jesus. So don't let me cause you to think anything other than this. Jesus Christ is the key. This is his genealogy. It's about him. Not going to go over it all, but will you remember those of you? How many of you were here last week? Raise your hand if you were here last week. So we saw two points. We read this one time through when we noted there were generations of grace. Guys, I'm, again, I'm not going to re-preach that point. The worst of sins that you and I would say that mankind can commit are committed by people in this group. The worst of the worst of sins. And yet this is the people that Jesus chooses to associate himself with. This is his genealogy. These are the kind of people that God allows into heaven. So we have to remember this is our nature when we're apart from God. God is willing to forgive. That theme of grace is going to run through all the points today. So it was the main thing that caught my attention last week before I looked to anyone's commentary. Grace, 
Mercy, mercy, mercy all over. The, look at that one. Lord, are you sure you got the right people? This is some wicked people. And God's like, Jeff, that's you without me. We are these people committing all these same sins. So we sure can't get haughty. The second thing we looked at last week was very important. We saw that our heritage does not define us. Literally, this happened. Watch. Here's a person who has a godly father, a godly grandfather, a godly great-grandfather, and then they have nothing to do with God. They go against God. There's a lesson there. Over here is another one, and they have an ungodly father, an ungodly grandfather, and an ungodly great-grandfather, and then they have a heart for God. It's like there's no consistency. And I really gleaned from that. The Lord showed me, Jeff, every person must have their own relationship with God. Quite a few Bartlett's in the Asheville, North Carolina area have had a heart for God by God's grace. God's grace approached us individually. Several have responded. But don't ever think, well, the Bartlett's from Western North Carolina, they love God. No, they do not. And neither do the Smiths and the Johnsons and the Taylors and, and the um, Thompsons and the whoever your name is. We don't automatically. So I try to encourage you. You say, I don't have any godly heritage in my family. Then begin it. You begin it. Start having that heart for God and then maybe it will pass down to those behind you. But every person has to have their own encounter with God. And so today is technically number one on your handout, but it's our third thought. I want to have four thoughts this morning. The first two, again, they're not the main point. You're like, Jeff, you shouldn't have said that. You just undermined these. We're really not going to pay attention until you get to point three. Please pay attention, point one. Okay, pay attention, point one. I, I think it's hopefully encouraging. I didn't know what to, what to label it, so I'm going to call it this. If you want to write it down, heavyweights in eternity. Heavyweights in eternity. Who are you talking about? Look at verse number one. So look at verse number one after you write that. Heavyweights in eternity. Look at verse number one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very important what I'm about to say. If you miss this, it'll mess up the whole point. The first name in verse 1. The gap between him and the other two names in verse 1, hear me, is infinite. The gap between Jesus and David and Abraham, that gap, infinite. Don't miss that. But, I want to talk about these two guys. The other two men listed after the first name are going to be two of the most powerful beings in eternity. You need to understand, if you read your Bible, you will come to that conclusion. We're talking about the heavyweights of eternity. Guys, in this life, angels are so, one angel. So much more powerful than all of us combined. So much more powerful. In eternity, no angel will outrank David and Abraham. These are the heavyweights. Again, Jesus, another league, infinite. He's God. These two right here, though, top of the top of the top of the list among everybody else. There's a reason they're listed here. I need to tell you something about these guys. Abraham, start with him chronologically. Follow me. There's a lot we could say about Abraham, but if you've read your Old Testament, here's some things you learn. Watch this. I'm going to pretend. I really should have had this on a map so you wouldn't have to pretend. I should have had this on the screen. 
I want you to pretend you're looking at an ancient map of the promise, not the promised land, but the Bible times map. So over here to my right, your left, we're going to go above the Persian Gulf to Iraq. Was it called Iraq? There's a city called Ur of Chaldees. You are. Abraham lives there. It appears from the Old Testament that on two occasions, we'll read one in a little while, two times God approaches Abraham and calls him from his people. And so Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees, his father's homeland, his people, the greatest civilization, the most advanced civilization. He leaves that 500 miles from southern Iraq up to Syria. And it appears that while he's there, again, with his father, and his father dies, God comes to him a second time, and finally he leaves. Here's my point. I'm not going to do it all. Abraham was a little slow in fully following God. Slow to fully follow God. Now, he followed God, but slow. He gets here, and he gets comfortable. Hey, it went 500 miles, but you got to keep moving. So he keeps moving, finally, as God nudges him along again. But then as he makes his way southward into the promised land, even on down into Egypt and back, more problems occur. Watch this. There are times where Abraham does not have the faith and trust in God that he needs to have, and it causes him to get really fearful because his wife is really good looking. So here's Abraham married to Sarah, and apparently Sarah's not a beautiful, she's very beautiful, the kind of woman that when he comes into a new territory and he knows there's powerful people there, on two occasions he gets so fearful that the leading most powerful man in the place is going to get word from his servants, uh, my Lord, uh, you got to see there's a new woman in town. Uh, who is it? Well, her name's Sarah. Bring her. Well, she's got this guy that's with her. Kill him and bring her to add her to the harem. So Abraham, not trusting God, his solution is, Hey, Sarah, listen, we've got to talk. We know what happens when you go into new places. Here's what you do. Don't tell anybody you're my wife. Just tell them you're my sister. Well, where's that going to leave it? Don't worry about that. I don't know what's going to happen, but just, just don't get me killed. And sure enough, he goes in there, and it happens just like he says. And these guys try to take her over into their harem. And then God intervenes and saves their bacon and... Abraham gets rebuked for his lack of faith because God really was looking out for him. Doesn't fully follow, doesn't fully trust, lies and deceives. That's going to pass down to his grandson and his great-grandsons. That's Abraham at his core left to himself. But then it gets worse. God had promised him that he's going to be the father of a nation. But he doesn't have any kids and Sarah's barren. And after a long time of trying, finally Sarah comes up with this brilliant idea. Since I can't have kids, why don't you take my young handmaiden over here. You have sex with her and then you can have kids from that. And I'm sure that will be the way that God's going to give you this great nation. And Abraham goes along with this very sinful, fleshly, worldly, man-made plan to keep the promise of God. And he ends up having sex with a woman that's not his wife. Even though his wife's saying to do this... He shouldn't have done it. And you're like, this is one of the heavyweights? We're talking about one of the heavyweights? What you have to understand, I just told you four or five things, and we could have added more. Hear this. As a whole, his was a life of extreme faith. And because as a whole, his was a life of extreme faith, his life was very pleasing to God. Very pleasing. David. Now David is an older man, a little bit older. Kind of in a few months we head into spring. 
And so David, in the spring of the year, when kings go out and do battle with other kings, he doesn't go this time. He sends his troops. Most of y'all know the story. He's literally taking a nap in the afternoon. His guys are out dying on the battlefield. David's taking a nap in, in, in the palace. Wakes up, stretches, goes out on the veranda, out on the porch. And lo and behold, he sees a woman taking a bath. And the Bible says she is very beautiful. And through one of his servants, he ends up inquiring and gets her to come over here. And the servant says, my Lord, uh, that's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, one of your guys. Uh, that's Reading between the lines, be quiet and do your job and go get her and bring her here. And he goes and he brings her and she comes. My Lord, do you understand? just head on out. Yes, my Lord, I'll be right outside. I tell you what, why don't you just go on home for the day? My Lord? Yeah, you're done for the day. I'll be good. We're good in here. And of course, they have sex. The bad thing is, they had sex. But it got worse for David because she ends up pregnant. And so as we tend to do when we get in a mess, we kick into self-preservation. So David starts trying to manipulate the circumstances, sends to the battlefront where her husband was at, tries to hurry him home, so surely they'll have some physical relationship. And they didn't have DNA tests, right? I don't watch this show, but I know I've seen commercials. They didn't have Mari Povich back then. And so they're going to get, hurry, get together, and he'll think that's his child, and everything will be fine. Don't watch Mari Povich. Don't watch that show. Uh, well, the problem is Uriah is a very upstanding man, a God-fearing man, and a man who's very patriotic, and he's thinking, hey, my Lord, you brought me home. Yeah, go down. Have a good time. Spend some time with your wife. Been on the battlefield, and then we'll send you back. Oh, I can't do that, and he will not go in with his wife. And when that doesn't happen again, David manipulates the circumstances, and in essence sends him out to die on the battlefield. David gives orders to make sure that Uriah dies. Did you catch what just happened? David, you know this, but you need to feel this. David committed adultery, and when she was pregnant, he lies and deceives and manipulates and commits murder. Adultery, murder. But here's what you have to understand. Those sins, you said, Jeff, adultery, murder. Those sins do not define David. In fact, you need to taste this for yourself and for anyone else. No child of God is defined by their sin. No child of God, I take a lot of comfort in that. No child of God is defined by their sin. Now, let's just be honest. Sin is what we remember about someone. When I said that, I didn't have to tell that story. You guys are like, oh yeah, I know where he's heading. Adultery and murder. We know that about David. Listen though. If that's all we focus on, we ignore one of the most passionate lives ever lived for God. Again, you'll have to forgive me for using my fingers. Watch this. I don't know how old he was, but at some point, David gets this heart for God. Watch the plateau of David's life. It runs like this. I mean, he has a heart for God from just a boy. And he remains this heart for God. This is his life. Yes, he has that. And he goes over here and he has this. And then he finishes well. Did you see that? Here's the plateau. That's his life. He lived a great life for the Lord. David is probably my favorite person in the Old Testament. You say, you're kidding. You just said he's a murdering, lying, adulterer. 
Yeah, that's my favorite guy in the Old Testament. I really like him. You say, why? Because God says David has a heart like his. And the evidence is rich that David has a heart like God. My pastor used to preach this little outline, and I'll give just a little short version of it. But one of the things that we learned was that, watch this. David is a worshiping, really taste this, he's a worshiping shepherd boy who writes love songs to God. So here he is out watching his father's sheep. The other brothers probably did it earlier in life, and now it's his turn. I'm telling you, I can, I, again, the Bible is not clear, but I promise you, I know you can tell by David, he's going to know each one of the sheep. He's going to know them by name. He's going to know the, the leaders. Sam, Caleb, let's go. Nah. Let's go, boys. And all the other sheep, oh, there goes Sam and Caleb. Time to go. We're following. Come on, boys. And he leads them to the water, and he leads them where the food is, and, and, he's, and he's fixing their hooves, and he's, he's taking care of them, and he's protecting them from bears and lions and people. This guy just has a heart for God. Please understand that he's minding his own business out in the pasture. He has no clue what his future is going to be. What is he doing? He's just writing these loves. What do you think about out there all day? I love on the sheep, and I just think about God, and me and God have these good times, and I write these songs, and we call them psalms, and they're in the Bible, and he just has this worshipful heart. But God loves music, and David had a skill. Have you ever met someone? They just, just had a gift. David was the best, the best instrumentalist, the best musician in the land. David was number one. He writes these love songs. He shepherds the sheep. And he's really good on the instrument, the best. He can sing, he can play, he can write. Man, what a heart. Somebody ought to marry that guy. Man, and he's good looking according to the scripture. You're like, wow. Somebody ought to marry. Well, here's a little thing that you wouldn't expect. David has the heart of a warrior. And you don't usually group that with what we've just said. You're like, oh yeah, I like that kind of person. Worshipful, songwriting, musician. But he has the heart of a warrior. David is just a boy. It comes out early. You know the story. I'm going to read between the lines a lot. And I'm going to filter and try to put a little color to this. So David comes to the battlefront. He's been sent by his dad to bring a care package to his older brothers. And as he gets there, everybody's kind of hunkered down. What in the world's going on here? Well, we're just kind of waiting around. What you waiting on? And then all of a sudden, again, I'm reading between the lines. What in the world is that noise? Oh, that's that giant. Do you hear what he's saying? Yes, he does that every day. There he goes again. He's blaspheming God. What are y'all doing? Y'all see this guy. Y'all see this guy. I'm going to rip his head off. <laughs> Kid, I like your zeal, buddy. Hey, Cap, we got one thinks he wants to go fight the giant. Here comes David's brother. Dave, Dave, what are you doing? You're making us look like a fool. What are you doing? Well, Dad sent me here. Here, take this. I'm going to rip that guy's head off. No, you're not. Quit embarrassing us. But David will take no for an answer. He will not take no for an answer. Finally, word gets back to the king. The king comes back and Saul's like, are you serious? You really do want to, you want to go die? Oh, I'm not going to die. I will rip his head off. Y'all know the story, right? He rips his head off. No, no, no. This guy's 10 feet tall. I don't care. You do not talk about my God. Something's wrong with you. Get, let me go. Oh, take this armor. I don't need your armor. You're going down, buddy. 
And there do I hear a little pipsqueak over there? I'm coming. I'm going to rip your head off. You are going to rip my head Bring it on, little boy. And he takes him down. David has the heart of a warrior, and he likes to write music and love songs and rip people's heads off. And then God calls him to be the king. And David has this unique heart. And he loves God's people. And he shepherds them. And he's a king constantly deflecting back to the Lord. Here's all I'll say. I've got to move to the second point quickly. We can debate Moses. We can debate Samuel and Daniel and Joseph. I understand all of that. We can talk about John the Baptist based off what Jesus said. And we can move to the New Testament talk about Peter and Paul. If you haven't gathered, my New Testament favorite outside of God in the Old or New Testament is Paul. But I know this, David and Abraham take a back seat to nobody. Listen to me. Christ's power is to forgive sinners and to lift them up above what they are. Before I move, taste it one more time. Look at the whole person's life. You never know where a person may rank. That's a murderer. That's an adulterer. There's a liar. Man, there's a guy who didn't trust God. He followed God a little bit slow. He didn't go the whole way immediately. Look what he did. He tried to fabricate. And look, he ended up having a child out of wedlock. Look what. Take the whole of the life. And remember, no saint's sinner, no saint's sin ever defines them. Number two, a prominent place for women. A prominent place for women. We cannot look at this passage without acknowledging the prominent place that women are given in this passage. And for this, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to lean heavily on William Barclay here. William Barclay, and by the way, if you want to look at verse 3, so Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We know her name is Bathsheba. Catch this. Barclay writes the following. I'm going to borrow heavily from him on this, pass, on this point. He researches things. William Barclay, I don't agree with everything he says. In fact, I'll probably disagree with a good 20% of what he does say. But he's really good on his research. He writes the following. Now, again, your 21st century American ear is not going to like this. But you've got to understand this is what we're talking about. Quote, it is not normal to find the names of women in Jewish pedigrees at all. Why? The woman, he's talking about back then, the woman had no legal rights. She was regarded not as a person, but as a thing. She was merely the possession of her father or of her husband. And in his disposal to do with as he liked. And if that's not offensive enough, his research has found this was not abnormal. He says... In the regular form of morning prayer, the Jew thanked God that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Think of that. There were Jewish men who on a regular basis going through their thankfulness, hey, we ought to have adoration, confession, thanksgiving. What do you thank God for? God, thank you, I'm not a Gentile. Lord, thank you that even if I were Jewish, I'm not a slave. And God, thank you, I'm not a woman. And you're like, that's, that's offensive. Okay, to your ear today. In their time, that was life. So here's what's astounding to me. 
of all the names, we're talking about 40-some males who fathered these children, of all the 40-some names, God's Holy Spirit, God is writing this. God, when He's inspiring Matthew what to write, He doesn't include Sarah. He doesn't include Rebecca. Again, Sarah had some issues. Rebecca would have been a great one to put in there. You want to include some women? Put in Rebecca. You know what He does? He chooses four women, and we're not even touching on Mary at the end. We'll talk about her next week. But he chooses four women, three of whom are most certainly Gentile, but probably all four are Gentile women. Guys, I want to get this thought across to you. God doesn't make mistakes. God is doing something on purpose. God is trying to tell us something by including these four women in the genealogy. What's he trying to show us? Well, first, let's take a quick, quick survey. I alluded to it last week, and several of you raised your hands that you were familiar with this account. Maybe because some of you are going through the Bible and you're reading, we're in January, so that had you recently, or you're still maybe in the book of Genesis. And so you remember this, but let me recount it, okay? Watch. Who's this Tamar? So the Bible says, verse number 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Watch. So there's Judah. Judah has three sons. The oldest is Ur, not you are, but E-R. Ur marries Tamar. But Ur is a wicked man. God kills Ur. They haven't had kids. So as the custom of the day was, Judah's next oldest son, number two, will now marry Tamar. And if they have children, they'll raise up children in the name of Ur. Second brother. She marries him. Problem. He's wicked too. God kills him. So here she's over for 2. In this family, Judah's boys aren't good guys. He has a third, but here's the problem. He's too young. He's not marriageable age. And so Judah says, Tamar, if you'll just wait, then marry the next son. And then you can raise up children to the oldest son through him. But you're going to have to wait a little bit. And so Tamar's waiting. But the years go by. And then one day, Judah is heading on a venture. And along the way, he spots a woman dressed up like a prostitute. Long story short, without getting too sordid, he negotiates a price with her for her prostitution services. And after they negotiate, he doesn't have what's needed with him, but he says, I'm good for it. And she says, well, I'll take a few items as kind of tokens, as a guarantee, a down payment as it were. And he says, that's fine. So she says, take your ring, your staff, and your garment, your coat. And so she has these things. He commits sin, fornication with this woman. Off he goes. He heads back home, remembers he wants his stuff back, needs to make his payment. So he sends a servant up. Go to such and such. There's a prostitute in this section. Go pay her and get my stuff back. So the servant goes and looks and she can't be found. And so they ask the people, hey, where's the, where's the prostitute that works this area right here? There is no prostitute that works that area. What? Well, so he goes back. Hey, sorry. Not going to get your stuff back. Well, she's not getting paid. Well, a little bit later, it becomes known to Judah that Tamar is expecting. And he gets really mad. She's supposed to be waiting on my son. Bring her here. And he's going to have her punished for her sinful crimes. And before she's put to death, she lets it be known, I am expecting child by him who owns this ring and this staff and this coat. And then it dawns on Judah what had happened. This woman 
played the harlot to get even with her father-in-law. And in the process, ends up committing what the Bible would refer to as incest. You don't have a sexual relation with son and father two generations. That is incestual, abominable. That's Judah. That's Tamar. Rahab is mentioned a little bit later. You remember her? Rahab is of the Canaanites, and there's the children of Israel coming into the land of Canaan, and they're getting ready to conquer. The first city they're going to defeat is Jericho, and they're going to go around seven times, and we know the story. But they send in these two spies, and this woman, Rahab, you know how she gets her money? She is not a one-time prostitute to get even with one man. That's how she makes her living. She's been with many, many men. But here comes these Israelites, and she believes in their God, and she ends up protecting them from her own people. She chooses to side with the nation of Israel and protects them. And so when they go back, and sure enough, the Israelites win the battle, they go and they seek out Rahab and spare her because she had spared the two spies. And she ends up marrying, and sure enough, ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is mentioned. I don't really have a lot of sin to mention about Ruth. All I'll say is she was a Moabite. You say, okay, Moabite, what's the big deal there? The Moabites are a nation who came to being out of incestual relations between Lot and his daughters. So Lot's a little older in life. His daughters don't have kids. They want to have kids. His daughters get him drunk, and then they end up having sex with Lot. They get pregnant, and out of them is this nation of the Moabites. And here comes Ruth, the Moabite. She can't be in the genealogy of Jesus. Well, she is. And then one more is this lady Bathsheba, who we know is Uriah's wife and the partner of David committing adultery. Now listen, the Bible doesn't say. The main blame lies with David. He's the king. He's the man of God. He should have known better. But what it doesn't say was this the first time he saw her. Did she place herself there? Was she flirtatious? I don't think this is the first time they met. This is, this, her husband's one of David's 300 mighty men. You've got to believe he knows their families. He's seen this woman before. David's a very powerful man. She would have been appealing and her husband's away. I'm not saying she was in on it. Did she tempt him though is a possibility. And you're like, man, of all the women, this is like the four worst he could have used. Hang with me. Barclay continues. Here at the very beginning of the gospel, Matthew shows us in symbol the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For he shows us barriers going down. Write them down. What are these barriers? Barclay is spot on. God is not just randomly picking people. God is teaching us something. God is making a point. Barclay offers three barriers. Number one, the barrier between Jew and Gentile is down. Remember, Matthew's writing in the 60s. What we're talking about here is not that the wall between Jew and Gentile is going to come down. The wall between Jew and Gentile is down and was down before Matthew wrote this book. And though Matthew's writing to Jews, he's putting this thought out there. These Gentiles are in the genealogy of the Christ. Barclay writes, he says, Here at the very beginning there is the universalism of the gospel and of the love of God. Number two, write it down. The barriers between male and female are down. God is showing us this in these women. The barriers between male and female are down. I'll guarantee you in this room right now, there are men who have a heart for God but have a blind spot in their thinking. They literally have a a mindset of a superiority of spiritually men over women. You better update your thinking. 
Barclay's correct. He writes the following. In no ordinary pedigree would the name of any woman be found. But such names are found in Jesus' pedigree. Not an accident. He continues. The old contempt is gone and men and women stand equally dear to God and equally important to His purposes. I'll promise you this. Eternity will be spent proving that point. Many, many women in the kingdom will be over Many men that were men in this life. The third thing that Barclay concludes from these women is the barrier. Hear this one. The barrier between saint and sinner is down. Now, got to qualify this. So, Jeffrey, you're saying there's no difference between a saint and a sinner. I'm telling you the only difference between a saint and the sinner is faith and grace. God came with grace and the Former sinner believed God's grace and received God's grace, became a saint. Here's the point. No sinner should ever see themselves and say, I could never be in the group of saints. I could never be a saint. Well, this list proved. Did you pay attention to the list? There's a woman who got her father-in-law back by playing the harlot. This one lives her life as a harlot. This one is from an, an incestuous nation. And this one commits adultery and helps the man of God be tripped up. The wall between saint and sinner is down. Barclay writes the following. Somehow, God can use for His purposes and fit into His scheme of things those who have sinned greatly. Jesus said, I am not come. Jesus said, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come on and say, I think there's a few righteous here today. All you righteous, follow me. Hey, you righteous, come follow. That's it. I, yep, seven. That's what I thought. You seven. No. I didn't come to call righteous. There are no righteous. I came to call sinners to repent. You say, we're all sinners. Have you ever repented? Number three. So we've seen these four points. Generations of grace. We're not defined by our heritage. Here we have women in a prominent place. We've got these two heavyweights in eternity. But now, and this one will be brief. And this is not a goosebump one. This is literally, if you were to interview Matthew, Matthew, what's your main point of the genealogy? It's the one we're about to touch. Genesis chapter 3, listen. There's a promise made, and mankind understands, whoa, there's a special one coming. And this one will be a human, and he will defeat Satan and crush Satan's head. Now, Satan's going to bruise him, but he's coming. Listen, he's coming. He's coming. And then we get to Genesis 12 and we find out through Abraham that a Messiah, a special son of Abraham, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so for 2,000 years before this is written, the Jews are looking, going back to Abraham, Genesis 12. He's coming, he's coming. Then you go to 1,000 B.C., David's time, 1 Chronicles 17. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. Isaiah chapter number 9, somewhere around 700 B.C. He's coming. He's coming. Be looking for him. More, more prophets. Zechariah tells us he's coming. He's coming. So the Jews keep looking and looking. And life's not getting any better. And we keep getting beat up by everyone. And we keep getting conquered. And we keep having sin. But God's going to send us a deliverer, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. Oh, he's coming. And then here Matthew comes in Matthew chapter 1 and says, The coming king has come. The coming king has come. That's the point. Of verses 1 through 17. The coming king. 
He's coming. No, 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 no. Matthew's like, he's come. The coming king has come. Warren Wearsby writes the following. Listen. If a man suddenly appears and claims to be a king. I'm a king. Of who? You. If a man suddenly appears and claims to be a king, the public immediately asks for proof. What credentials can he present? So anticipating these important questions, Matthew opened his book with a careful account of the birth of Jesus Christ and of the events that accompanied his birth. Listen to me. Hey guys, I don't know my great-grandfather's name. You say, which one? Neither one. I know my dad's dad's name was Ernest Bartlett. Died, I think, in 1982. I know my mom's father's name was John Stinson. I think he was 1977. He was my favorite, right? 1977, lose granddaddy. 1982, lose papa. And then very shortly after that, we'll lose mamma. And then a little bit later, we'll lose nanny, right? That was my mom's mom. So I know Ernest Bartlett's name, and I know John Stinson's name. But I don't know John Stinson's father's name, and I don't know Ernest Bartlett's father's name. And some of you are like, well, that's terrible. You don't even know your own great-grandfather. I'm not alone in this room. I'm not alone. There's some of you sitting here like, you know, come to think of it. You know, you, you know, I got my father, you got grand. I don't know my great. Some of you are like, I know my great-great-grandfather's name. Wonderful for you. I don't. Why are you saying that? Watch. This is important. For a Jew... It was extremely important to know their genealogy. Very important to know. Why? Your land rights in the promised land, in the holy land, depended on what tribe you're from. Can you prove you're from where? Oh, you're, you're Zebulun? You're Naphtali? You're Ephraim? You're Manasseh? Okay, this is your area. Your property's over there. Now, which family and which clan? Okay, well, then you're on this side of the river. Oh, you're on the other side of the creek. You better be able to prove your, your, your place if you want to have a land allotment. If you come along and say, whoa, whoa, we don't have any land. I'm a priest. I'm a Levite who's a priest. You better be able to prove your genealogy going back to Moses' brother, Aaron. Old Testament talks about a couple of priests who were not allowed to be priests because they couldn't prove their priesthood genealogy back to Aaron. Land rights, priesthood, listen By far the most important thing was if anyone came along claiming to be of the royal line of David, you would better be able to prove your royal line back to David. Barclay writes the following. He says, this may seem to us an uninteresting passage. Just be honest, you're American, right? You're like, I have sure seen more exciting passages than this. Barclay writes, this may seem to us an uninteresting passage, but to the Jew it would be a most impressive matter that the pedigree of Jesus could be traced back to Abraham. This is key. Again, the last word of the quote was Abraham. Now, I'm not going into all the technicality. Let me just say, I don't know how fully to interpret verse 17, but these are the facts. In giving this genealogy, Matthew skips over some names. He skips over at least three names we know between Joram and Uzziah. He skips over some other names earlier. Most of the time he's skipping over is between Abraham and David. He's trying to cover 800 years and he does it with 14 generations. And then he covers another 1,000 years with 14 generations. And in both groups, he skips some generations. And so you're thinking, why does that happen? 
Let me give you a quick note. Though while covering 1,800 years, Matthew omits several names for sake of memory. Most every scholar would agree, and I'm not going into the numerical meaning of David and taking the vowels out and leaving the consonants. Jews didn't have a number system, so they used letters to make a number system. David's name equals 14, so there's 14, 14, 14. To help people memorize, for memory's sake, Matthew skips over and omits some names. Why? But ultimately, watch... Ultimately, he covers the essence of the ancestry from Israel's founder, Abraham, to Israel's first true king. I'm not counting Saul of Benjamin. That was another, would would have been dynasty, but was never part of God's plan. So Abraham, the founder, to the first true king, David, to the last king that they would have known, Jeconiah, all the way down to the eternal King Jesus Christ. 1,800 years, yes, he leaves a few names out, but ultimately gets it down where they could memorize and have this because genealogy was extremely important. I didn't have room in your notes. I really should have done this, but make a quick point. Very quick. One point. Last week I said that we know that the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, and when that happened, they destroyed the genealogical records. You know what this means? That means that today, Jesus of Nazareth is the only Jew who can prove his genealogy runs right back to David. No Jew in the world can prove their genealogy to David. One Jew alive today. You say, well, you said alive, Jeff. Jesus Jesus is alive. And right here's his genealogy proving he goes back to David. So what does this all mean? Last week and this week, we've given you five points. The last one was Matthew's main point. So of all the applications we could make, I want to finish with one main, main application. Here's the main takeaway for us. What does it mean? Write it down, number four. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. I want to read a verse out of Numbers chapter 23. Well, I can't give you the background here. Y'all remember this? Balak sees Israelites coming. He's scared. They're going to run over us like they've run over everybody. But he knows there's this man who has a line with God and receives revelations from God. And so they bring Balaam. I'll pay you a bunch of money. Balaam, get with God and pronounce a curse because what you say is going to happen is what happens and so we're going to pay you money, and we want you to pronounce a curse on those Israelites before they get over here. And sure enough, Balaam tries, goes and meets with God, and God says, you're not going to curse them, and he ends up blessing. What are you doing? I'm not paying you to pronounce blessing on these people. I'm paying you to pronounce a cursing. Go back to God again. He goes back to God again, and God tells him again. And so Balaam comes back and pronounces another blessing, and this really ticks off Balak. I'm not paying you to bless these people. I'm paying you to put a curse on these people. Verse number 19 Balaam says, Balak, come here. You've got to understand something. Watch this. God is not man. Everybody listen to me. It's Christians particularly. No, not just Christians. Everybody. If you're not a Christian, you need to get this. Balaam, he wants to take the money. He wants to pronounce the judgment. Man, he'll do anything for money apparently. He's not a great prophet, but he does receive true revelations from God. But he has to finally tell this man, God is not man that he should lie. He just put all of us in the category of people, 
people who lie. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. God is not a man, he's not a son of man that he should lie. Hey, you said, yeah, well what you didn't know was that when I was talking, I had my fingers crossed. And my hands crossed. And if you recall, my legs were crossed when I told you. You changed, you switched plans. But my fingers, guys, God doesn't ever say, yeah, I had my fingers crossed. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Balaam asked, has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? The implied answer is yes. I, all I can do is say what God's going to do. God's already said he's, he's going to bless these people. I cannot curse them. I would be lying. I have to say what God says. Go with me if you would. Genesis 12. Genesis 12. The major application of Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is that God always keeps his promises. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you're going to see seven promises from God. We alluded to it earlier. I believe this is the second time the Lord comes to Abram. He'll be called Abraham later. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. A country is a land. Nations are people. Go, here's God, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave there, leave them. Go there. What's going to happen? Verse 2. This is, this is a major passage of Scripture. God tells Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation. He has no kids. He, God's telling Abraham, Number one, I will make of you a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. You're going to be a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, and make your name great. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Hey, real quick, I want to just do a quick case study. Real quick research. Raise your hand if you had heard of this man, Abraham, before today. Would you raise your hand? I think that's most every person. If your hand was not able to go, go up, now you have heard of Abraham. Okay? Verse number two continues. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. Here it keeps coming. So that you will be a blessing. Next, number five, I will bless those who bless you. People are good to you, I'll be good to them. And number six, him who dishonors you, I will curse. They will regret. It will be bad news for them if they come against you. And then the big one, number seven, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Very quickly, write it down. Matthew 1, what is the point? 2,000 years earlier, God had promised Abraham that through his seed, it becomes clear later in Genesis, through his seed, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through this descendant of Abraham. God made a promise. 2,000 years. Some of us get very impatient if God doesn't answer our prayer request within a few hours or at least within a couple of days. 2,000 years the Jews have been waiting. Is God going to keep his word? Yes, God keeps his word. Go to 1 Chronicles. You really want to see this. Go 1 Chronicles 17. What's the main application of Matthew 1, 1 to 17? God always keeps his promises. 1 Chronicles 17. Look at verse number 1. This is not Corinthians in the New Testament. It's Chronicles in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 17. Here we go. Now when David... 
lived in his house. This is not yet to that Bathsheba time. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan, I need you to come by one day. We need to talk. Here comes Nathan the prophet and David says, Behold, picture this. Let the word of God speak to you. You got it? Here's, here's David. Maybe they're sitting down and got some tea and maybe somebody's waving a fan. I have no idea. Look what he said. Behold, Nathan, Nate, look. I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Now he's not saying I'm, I'm regretting building the king's palace. It's going to be passed down. It's really, really fancy. A lot of money went into building this thing. But something's really messed up when I, the king, live in a palace made out of wood and gold. And over there's all the art and there's the sculptures and they've got all the utensils for eating and drinking. Got the vases and the rugs. But God's ark, the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat, with the commandments in it, it just keeps moving around in this tent. That's not right. That's just not right. We need to do something about that. Verse number 2. Nathan said to David, do all that's in your heart. God is with you. King, you're on a, you have a great idea. Do what you're thinking. The problem is Nathan jumped the gun a little bit without checking with the Lord. Verse number 3. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. So here it comes. Here's God through Nathan speaking to David. Watch. Here's the Lord. It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places, remember the 40 years, remember coming out of Egypt, conquering the land of Canaan. Then they have Saul and finally David and David moves the kingdom and now it's going to have a capital city down in Jerusalem. God says, verse number 6, In all the places where I've moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know, catch what God's saying. Nathan, tell David, Have I ever one time complained and told them, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He says, I've never had that conversation. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Here it comes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. David, you remember your little boy? Yeah. Remember you, young man? Yeah. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a prince. You had no clue what my plan was, but I took you to be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. God's now talking to David. He's not fussing like you have a terrible idea. He's just saying, you're not going to be the one. That David, right idea. You can't do it. It's not in this passage, but David had shed too much blood. So here's what God says. I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 9. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, David, listening, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. He's not talking about a palace. He's talking about house of people when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers that's a euphemism David when you die I will raise up your offspring after you one of your sons one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever 
I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Did y'all just catch what happened? Now here's the problem. There's a time gap between the first fulfillment of this and the second fulfillment. There's two promises. David, you want to build me a house? I love that about you. You love me. And that's going to be done. One of your descendants, Solomon, is going to build this temporary house for me. But I'm going to build for you a permanent nation. And I'm going to send another descendant. And his kingdom, his throne, will be established forever and ever and ever. And through him, I will keep my covenant with you. And oh, by the way, it's the same descendant that answers Genesis chapter 12. God promises David, your descendant's throne will be established forever. Can I tell you this? Did you catch these two covenants? I want to tell you the most wonderful thing about these two covenants. They're both unconditional. They're both unconditional. You say unconditional, what does that mean? There are no what? Help me. There are no what? No conditions. This is God just saying what's going to happen. Catch what Wearsby says. Those of you who know your Bible, I want you to test. Is he accurate here? I believe he is. Those of you who say, I don't really know much about the Bible, really hear this. You're going to hear what we call the gospel in a nutshell. Warren Wearsby writes the following. Here we're saying, what's the main takeaway, Jeff? God always keeps his promises. Watch. The Old Testament. Listen. The Old Testament gives the history of the Adam family. Not the Adams family. No, 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 not that. Shouldn't have done that. Now y'all are thinking about them. The Old Testament gives the history of the Adam family. And it is a sad history indeed. God created man in his own image. But man, Adam, Eve, man sinned. Hey, if you don't know the Lord is your Savior, listen to this. Man sinned, thus defiling and deforming that image. Then man brought forth children in his own likeness after his image. These children, us, proved themselves to be sinners like their parents. No matter where you read in the Old Testament, you meet sin and sinners. We've been in Matthew 1, a genealogy. Wiersbe writes the following... When you read the genealogy in Genesis 5, the repeated phrase, and he died. And he died. He says the repeated phrase, and he died, sounds like the tolling of a funeral bell. Here's this man, he lived this long, he had these kids, and he died. And he picks out some of the kids, they lived this long, and then they had these kids, and he died. And then picks out one of the kids. And then they had these kids. And he lived this long. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Wearsby's on to something. He says the repeated phrase. Sounds like the tolling of a funeral bell. The Old Testament illustrates the truth that the wages of sin is death. Death. Always. Death. Old Testament proves it. But when you turn to the New Testament. That first genealogy emphasizes birth, not death. The message of the New Testament is that 
Not that the wages of sin is death. The message of the New Testament is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have a quote in your handout. Wiersbe writes, the Old Testament is a book of promise. He's coming. He's coming. The New Testament is a book of fulfillment. That's a key word to Matthew. Fulfillment. Old Testament. Promise. New Testament. Fulfillment. He says, beginning with Genesis 3.15. Please note that reference. 3.15. God promised a Redeemer. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise. Y'all get that? This struck me not till yesterday. We get two and a half chapters into the Bible. We've blown it so bad. God is having to promise a Redeemer to clean up our mess. Two and a half chapters in. That didn't take long at all. We get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 of the New Testament. And the New Testament says, here is his name. His name is Jesus. God promised someone to clean up our mess. It is Jesus. Would you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Now listen. Sometimes we get very man-centered and very selfish and arrogant and prideful. But this is true. You've got to hear this. God is not obligated to make promises. He didn't have to make promise. Well, God has to. No, God doesn't have to make a single promise. We could have messed it up and God could have just said, and there goes earth and there goes all of us and just cast us all into hell. He could have been done with it. He had every right. God is not obligated. But listen to me. Once he makes a promise, God is now obligated. God doesn't have to promise, but once he does promise, he is now obligated because he's holy, righteous, just, truthful. He would stop being God if he starts telling lies. He doesn't have to make promises. But if you can catch God in a promise. J.I. Packer writes the following. My last quote that I'll give you here. He says, God's, hear this. God's word is his executive instrument in all human affairs. Of him as of no one else. It is true. What he says goes. It is in truth the word of God. That rules the world and that fixes our fortunes for us, unquote. You know what that means? If God says it, Jesus makes it good. The Old Testament has all these promises. The New Testament, Jesus makes the promises good. That's what he does. Some of God's promises are unconditional. It is literally God just telling the person, here's what I'm going to do. Just going to let Abraham. Yes, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a famous name. You're going to be a blessing. People who mistreat you, they're going to wish they hadn't. I'm going to curse them. Those that bless you, I'm going to bless them. And through you, through one of your descendants, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. David, I'm going to make you a king. One of your descendants is going to rule and reign through eternity on a throne, a real throne. It'll be your family lineage. Many are not unconditional. So here's the driving, the final down the home stretch of this message. Other promises only occur as we learn them, understand them, and enact them by depending on them and trusting on them. This is so important. This is very important. This is the point of the message where everything hopefully comes to a point. Some of God's promises, unconditional. It's just going to happen. Other of God's promises have conditions on them. They will not happen unless you know them, 
have an understanding and enact them by relying, depending, trusting on them. So I have a series of questions for you. Answer these in your head. Be honest. What has God ever promised you? What's God ever promised you? Second question, when did God promise you this? Think of something. Well, God's promised me this. When did God promise you that? Third question, in what form did God promise? Well, there was this preacher, and he told a story about an old lady in a Volkswagen, and it was really, really good. And in the course of that, he kind of led me to think that God is going to. And so I just believe God has to. You better have something more than a preacher's illustrative story about an old lady in a Volkswagen. What form did it come to you? Have you understood it properly? Listen to me. What promise has God ever made to you? Are you experiencing it? Are you living it? Are you experiencing it? Some have conditions. Look at these verses on the screen. Join me. Look at these verses. Isaiah 26.3. Look at this. Watch. Look at that. God doesn't have to make promise. Look at that. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Somebody here today, you are all tore up. You just need some peace. God says, you will have it. But there's a condition. You must stay your mind on the Lord and trust in Him. You're worried too much about what's causing you to be all anxious. Here's a promise. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Look at Romans chapter number 6, verse number 11. Look at this with your eyes. This is for the Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. Earlier in this chapter, God promised a Christian has been freed not only from the penalty of sin, but free from the power of sin. We are dead to sin. It, it, It cannot dominate us if we do not let it. But watch verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Somebody here today, the same old sin keeps whipping you. I'm telling you, the victory over sin, mine, the ones that that I struggle with, yours that you struggle with, when I have victory, it's when I remember Romans 6 and Philippians 4. You say, Romans 6, Philippians 4, that sounds like something. You need to go home. If there's a certain sin that's been whipping you, you need to go home and just over and over. Study Romans 6, study Philippians 4. That's where the victory is. You're saying, I need some victory. There's the promise. Now, you do have to consider yourself dead to sin. James chapter 1, verse number 5. Some of God's promises are conditional. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all, all without reproach. And it will be given him. Now the next verse says you must ask him faith. But there's two conditions. You catch it? Wisdom. There's somebody here this morning. There's some of you right now. You're saying, I really, I just, I don't want to miss God's will. I want to know the path that pleases the Lord. I want to know the one that honors him the most. Even if it's not the one I want to do. I really want to know God's will and I'm going to do it. I just need to know which one it is. If you'll ask and believe, God, I'm asking for wisdom. That I'm going to do your will. I expect you to give it to me. Guys, these are huge. These three verses I just gave you. Huge checks over in the the amount. Huge checks. Peace, victory, wisdom. It's all written out. You've got to go cash it, though. You have to go cash this thing. God, you said, if I'll just focus on you. So I'm going to stop thinking about that. It's getting me all tore up. I'm just going to start focusing on you. And that is amazing how that works. God, here comes this sin. It's really trying to tempt me. I'm about to fall. Wait a minute. Romans 6.11 says, you are not my boss. Get out of here. You're not beating me again today. You've heard me say, this is the tenth time in two years at least. Talk to your sin. 
Reminded of Romans 6.11 on a regular basis. 1 John 1.9. Somebody here this morning, you're like, man, I just need some forgiveness. I just feel so guilty. And I just need some forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me. People may not forgive you. They may, they may not. God will. Here's the condition. you got to confess your sin. God, you're right. Would you forgive me? And then the last two. Is this for anyone here this morning? Some of God's promises are conditional. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9. If, hey, you say, I cannot think of a single time where I began a relationship with God through Jesus. Listen to the Bible. If you confess, that means to agree with God. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, that's your core being, that God raised him from the dead. That means I believe he really died. God really raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Four verses later, to make it crystal clear, Romans 10, 13. Here's what the Bible says, for everyone. But I just don't know, I think I'm in the sinner category. I can never be in the saint category. If you'll believe this and enact it and bring this in front of God and say, God, I don't even understand it all. All I know is your word says if I'll confess Jesus is my Lord, I do believe. I don't understand it. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. He really did die. But you were so pleased with his death on the cross in my place. You raised Jesus from the dead. You're that powerful. And his death was for me. I believe it. Verse number 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God made a promise. Every promise he ever makes comes true. He's throwing it out there to somebody in that section, that section, this one, that one, someone watching online. Literally right now, would you just say, God, I'm a sinner. I confess my sins, but I believe in Jesus. He is the Lord. He's my Lord. I receive your salvation. You cannot lie. 2,000 years the Jews looked for a Messiah. He came. You always keep your word. I receive it right now by grace through faith. Right now I receive it through faith. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Boy, I wonder, is there one person? Is there one person that's sitting here this morning saying, I have never done that. I've never just really claimed a promise of God. Maybe I've never even heard these strung together like this, but I need some forgiveness. Maybe the Holy Spirit, something right now is tearing you up on the inside. We started saying this is not a goosebump message. And maybe you're sitting there like, my heart is pounding. Somebody right here, you may be thinking, I, I am really scared. I'm not going to where God is. I'm going to hell when I die. And right now as I sit here, I, I need God to forgive me. Will he forgive you? Listen, it's not a question, will he forgive you? It's a question, will you believe him? He can't lie. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. God does not cross his fingers. He promises if you'll believe. If you'll, like in your own heart, in your own mind, go ahead right now. Talk to God. He listens. He hears you. You have to believe. Don't talk to me. Talk to him. You got to believe. God, you are. You are. You can't lie. Lord, I am that sinner. You know all my sins. I can't even name them all. But God, I'm sorry. God, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross. 
And I believe he died. And he took my sin. God, I believe you raised him from the dead. You are that powerful. I believe that. And this morning, Lord, I am calling Jesus my Lord. I'm taking him as my Lord. God, you said if we'll call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Jesus, do it right now. Right there where you sit. Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you forgive me of my sins? I confess them. Be my Lord. Hey, I dare you to go one step further. If you really meant what you said, do this. God, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Christian, if you're a Christian, you've done that before today. Anybody here? Just right where you're sitting, God. I need that peace. I've, I've been thinking about everything but you. God, give me eyes and ears and thoughts for you. May my mind be stayed upon you. I've been very anxious, very worrisome. Hey, Christian, some sin has been whipping you and you're tired of it. Romans 6, 11 is for you. God, I'm going to consider myself dead to that sin and alive to you. Somebody here today, you, you need some real life direction. God, I lack wisdom. I want to know your plan. Doesn't matter what it is, God, would you just show me? Let your Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm in an open stance. Let your Holy Spirit guide me. This coming week, I want you to guide me and make it clear. And I'm going to follow your plan. I'm asking you and I believe you're going to give it to me. I receive it by faith. Father, thank you for your word unconditional to Abraham and to David but Lord to me as a nine year old boy that if I would put my faith in Jesus you'd save me and you did that thank you that nothing I've ever done since or ever will do since then will take that from me it's eternal life Lord thank you for letting me know it and so Lord I ask you to help our congregation claim your promise today that we need the most in Christ's name